Will you turn with me, please, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. We're going to jot through quite a number of scriptures this morning. And we're still on the, the theme, must, needs, it's abounding clause. This is part four, and it's totally different. So if you've missed the other three parts, then you're okay, because this is completely different than the others. Luke chapter 14, beginning to read at verse 16, please. Then said he unto him, a certain man made a great supper and bade many. And sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. I pray they have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Keep your Bible open. Let's stop there. We know the Lord will bless the reading of his own inspired word. Let's just pray. Father, settle us in your presence. Settle our minds from whatever we have left behind this day, this weekend, or this week. And settle our minds, Father, what we think may lay ahead of us this week to come. And help us, Lord, to fix ourselves upon your Son. And let us open our hearts to your word. Speak to us, Lord, and may the truth of thy word reign in every life. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter and we are the clay. So separate us off this morning from the world and from every thought and every distraction, Lord, that would tear us from hearing your voice and glorify your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his wonderful name we ask it. Amen. Must needs its abounding clause. The word must, the word must, expresses necessity or certainty. We've looked at that over three other weeks. Expressing necessity or certainty. It also speaks of something that's binding. Something binding. We must. We must. In our reading this morning in Luke chapter 14, and the Lord tells a parable of a man who makes a, a great supper and invites many. You can read the whole chapter when you when you go home, maybe for a devotional reading. But notice what the Lord tells us when we let our eye run down to verse 18. It says, And they all with one consent began to make excuse. Notice, they made an excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. Notice what he said, I must needs go. I must needs go. In other words, this man was saying it was absolutely necessary. It was of a real certainty. And also he was saying it was something binding him that he could not follow on with Christ, but must go see a piece of land. 
But notice what the Lord said in verse 18. They all with one consent began to make an excuse. You may say to me, why would I tell, tell a congregation or why would I expound why the word must, M-U-S-T, why the word must, must be explained? <laughs> why should we all know what it means to, we must do something? But the idea in our own human logic is that we don't really know, acknowledge, nor understand fully what it means, the word must. For example, these three men that the Lord picks out of all who were bidden and all who refused. He picks out three in his parable. And the first says, I've bought a piece of ground and I must needs go see it. I pray thee have me excused. Now, here's the thing we have to ask ourselves. Can you honestly see yourself driving up the countryside and seeing a for sale sign on a plot of ground, driving past it without stopping to look at it and going to the the seller of it and buying a piece of ground, handing over your money without testing it to see what's able to be done on it? Is it farming ground? Is it ground for building? Or what would it be used for? What sort of land is it? Can you honestly see a man giving a lot of money for a parcel of ground when he knows nothing about it. That's why the Lord said it was an excuse. It was an excuse. I have to go and see my land. The second one says, and another says, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. I pray they have me excused. Five yoke of oxen. Uh, if there's two oxen in a yoke, uh, then that would be ten oxen he's bought without even trying them to see how strong they are. Are they able to pull in harness? What are they like in the yoke? Will they pull in a straight line? Will they pull a, 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 a straight furrow? And this man says, I have already bought these, but I haven't proved them. In other words, there's something binding me. I have to go prove. And then the third one, if you look at it, he says, and another said, on, said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. I sort of understand him a bit. <laughs> but what this man is doing is he's perverting the word of God. He's perverting the word of God. For example, the first man, the first man that says, I've bought a, a piece of ground and I have to go and see it. He's losing the perspective on things. A plot of land, a plot of land the following Christ. Something that's earthly for something that's heavenly. He's losing the perspective on worldly issues and worldly goods. He's losing the perspective instead of following and laying up treasures, not on earth but in heaven, following Christ. So he needs perspective. The second one who says, I have bought five yoke of oxen, I pray thee, he says he had to prove my pray thee, have me excused. Here's another excuse. In other words, Lord, will you excuse me for how I act? Will you excuse me for how I get on? Have me excused. And a lot of us live our lives saying, Lord, excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. When the Lord says, no excuses, follow me. No excuses, Come to me. No excuses. Draw near to me. 
No excuses. Lay all your things of your life and your worldly pleasures down and follow me. Excuse me, Lord. I wonder how many of us have said recently to the Lord, well, he's laid something on our hearts, he's laid something in our minds. Or maybe the word of the Lord has been preached and something struck home really deeply to you and you've went, excuse me, Lord, I know you're speaking, but excuse me, I must go. And Christ is saying, no, you must do. You must obey the word of the Lord. So the first one, he needs perspective. The second one, well, what do we say about a man who would prefer to go and work with animals or a man who prefer to go and work in the field without following Christ? Do you know there are many people who want to serve the Lord but don't know the Lord of the work? They don't know him. And they'll say, excuse me, I don't really want to, uh, I, I don't want to, to, to give of myself. I don't want to give of my time. I don't want to give of my substance. I don't want to give, Lord, of my life. I want the easy life, but I still want to be classed as yours. But excuse me. He needs permission, the second one. And the third one, well, was just perversion. How do we mean? In other words, he says in verse 20, another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. What he was doing was, he was now saying, there's a man who'll say, but in the word of God it says. The first lie in the word of God was Satan to Eve when he said, twisting the word, hath God said. Putting doubt in your mind. When our Lord Jesus is risen from his waters of baptism and the Spirit descends upon him in the bodily form of a dove and the Father speaks from from glory or from heaven and he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, the Lord Jesus is driven out into the wilderness. And the first thing that happens after 40 days and 40 nights of his temptation there comes and the devil says, the first thing is, if thou art the Son of God. Twisting the word, perverting the word. And look how many people will pervert the word of God to suit their own ends. Pervert the word of God to suit their own desires. You cannot pervert the word of God and get away with it. Because the word of the Lord is forever settled in heaven. Now notice this. The third one says, I have married a wife. He's taking it. And you can jot it down. We'll We'll not go into it this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 5. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 5. There was a law that a man uh, in Israel, when he was to marry a wife, he was not to go to war for one year. He wasn't to go to war for one year. This man saying, hold on, I've just got married. I can't follow you for the next year. I have to go, I have to go and, and I have to be with my wife. For if they go to war and they're killed, then he's no, he's no seed left. He's no children coming after him and his family line is, is diminished and there's none there. So the Lord says for the first year, you go and you stay with your wife. No war. But it didn't release him from spiritual service and sacrifice. There's a big difference. So this man says, Lord, I'll come to your feast, but I can't go. I've just married a wife. Now, you know, I joked there, you know, your wife wouldn't let you out. But that's not what he was meaning at all. He was saying the law says, the word says, I can't go. 
But it says you were not to go to war for one year. It did not say you were not to leave all and follow him. That's the difference. So needs must. Why would I say, let's expound the word must. We all know what it means, do we? These three examples of these three men brought nothing but lame excuses to the Lord. And what it is, is I must. It's binding. You know what? Lord, I would do it, but I can't. You're not fooling the Lord. Lord, I would go there. I know you're drawing me. I know you're calling me. I, I would be here. I would be even at my meeting whenever the meeting's on, Lord. But, oh, well, you know, look what happened. And sort of can't really go. You, you know all about it. Excuse me. Excuse me, Lord, is another way of saying, Lord, I'm not doing your will. Whatever God says to you, I I could run off a thousand examples, but it's whatever the Lord says to you, personally. Whatever the Lord speaks to you in in your devotional life and out of his word, whatever the Lord says to you in the house of God at the preaching of his word, in your Bible study times, whatever he says to you, I would say like his mother said, whatever he says, do it. Do it. Don't give excuses to God. You know, we give excuses all the time to each other. Oh, you know, I'd have met up with you, but. And sometimes it's true. Sometimes we just know we could if we wanted, but we just didn't. Because this was preference went somewhere else. So perspective and preference we need to look at too. What these men preferred in their lives and what they preferred in their hearts and what they preferred to do, what they preferred among their families was above the calling of Christ. We look at the unsaved and we say, you don't know what you're missing when you come to saving faith in Christ. And when you give your life to Christ, and whenever Christ washes you and cleanses you and, and you're redeemed and you're sealed and you know, we give them all the rhetoric and you're justified, but, but yet it's okay to say it to the unsaved, but when we say it to the man and woman who are claiming Christ as Lord, our own hearts deceive us. See, the Lord says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and I try the reins. On the night of our Lord's betrayal in the upper room, when he says, one of you is a devil and you'll betray me, all the disciples looked at each other and they went, is it I? Me, Lord? They didn't know their own hearts. Brother, sister, the reason I'm saying must needs is a binding clause. Must needs is not a get out clause. I must. Must see the land. I must uh, go see my oxen. Uh, I, I, I must stay at home because the word of God says this about it. Listen, the word of God says, forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together as a manner of some is. The word of God tells us many things that people forget about. So notice this. These three men that Christ has mentioned here in this parable, their desire, their desire was not for him. Their desire was not for him. Brother, sister, I'm going to be honest with you, and I'll talk to you, but I'm talking to me. I think we could all say there's many times in our life when we could all say that's true. 
Just some decide to live their life that way. If you were to uh, just go over to Luke chapter 12 while we're here, just let your eye run down. Uh, the first 31, the Lord says, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags, which was not old. A treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let me ask us all a question, myself and yourself and whoever else will hear. What is your treasure? Is your treasure your pleasure? Is your treasure that which we look at uh, with our 2020 vision and covet and desire, chase after? Is your treasure money and riches? Is your treasure pleasures of the flesh? What is your treasure? Is your treasure comfort? There's nothing wrong with enjoying the things God gives us. But when it becomes your treasure, it becomes your field, when it becomes your oxen, when it becomes your own heart's twisting of the word. I wasn't going to say your wife now. But by the way, brother, your wife isn't first in your life. She's second. The Lord's first. Sister, they're second in your family. Because when you love him, you'll love her. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Wives, obey your husbands in the Lord. We'll stop there at the minute, will we? I get myself into enough trouble sometimes. Notice this. So here we have must need. Sometimes we say must, and the must that we say is not a must at all. Whatsoever. It's not a must at all. In fact, it's just an excuse. You know what? If I had a, a penny or even, well, let's go with inflation. If I had a pound, every time someone says, Pastor, I was coming to church today, but I tell you, we could, we could have a new building here. See, where our treasure is, is your treasure on earth or is your treasure your field? Is your treasure your oxen? Is your treasure the, the, the word of God to your liking and your standard, or is it what it really says? And we have to look at it and say, Lord, where are we in this? Search my heart. Search me, O God, and O my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any way, wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, David says. And we must search our hearts for where is your treasure? If your treasure is your earthly pleasure, then we're going all wrong. We're building our own kingdom. But if our treasure is Christ, if our treasure is sacrifice and the giving. I'm not saying go out and sell your house and throw it around all over the place. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about the heart. Giving the heart to Christ. Giving your life to him. So many of us, we, 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 
we, we become smooths and you know, Sunday morning only Christians and we become, become our Sunday evening only Christians or every now and again Christians or we become just religious Christians where the point is we come and we have a religious sort of a ceremonial stuff and then when we go home, where's Christ the rest of the week? Where is he in our life and where is he during the week and where are we during the week and what are we doing and where is he in my life and heart and how do we feel about him? What do we think about him? Do we communicate with him and commune with him and fellowship with him? Is he your treasure? Old Puritan Samuel Rutherford said, I love this quotation. I read it quite a lot of years ago and it always just go over it in my mind. And the old Puritan, uh, you, you know, you look at them as if they're dry old sticks. He says, but since he hath looked upon me, my heart is not mine own. For he hath run away to heaven with it. Has Christ run away with your heart? Has he taken up your affections? Has he swallowed you up with his love? How cold the heart can grow and how quickly it can do so. So let's move for a moment. This man perverted the word. So what must we do? I'll do a few of these and we'll wrap it up. These are quick shots. And we'll do another one next week in the Lord's will. Turn with me. We all know this chapter very well. John's Gospel, chapter 3, please. Must needs. It's a binding clause. So these men weren't bound at all. People make excuses why they won't come to Christ. People make excuses why they'll reject him. And Christians make excuses why they won't serve him. Give their whole heart and mind and soul and body to him. John chapter 3, please. Well-known portion of scripture. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles except that, that thou doest, except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water, And of the Spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must, ye must, ye must be born again. Now, that is a real must. That is a real binding clause. That is something expressing necessity, the born-again experience. That is something expressing complete and total certainty. Ye must, the words of Christ himself, ye must be born again. Brother, sister, ye must. We're born again, aren't we? We're born again. If we're born again, then we're born of the Spirit, for you must be born of water you must be born, and verse 3 says, you must be 
Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then he says in verse 5, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, or born from above. The Word of God entering the heart of the man and the woman who have been regenerated by the Holy Ghost. So since we are born again, since we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and He lives in us, since we are and we have such an experience, then our lives must change. So when we say to people, oh, you, you can be, or rather those who say to people, you can be religious or you can be good, <clears throat> or you can be this, that, or the other to, to enter into God's heaven, into the kingdom of God, and to say you can be that way but unregenerate and not born again, then it's impossible because Christ said, with a certainty, with a must, and a binding clause, you must be born again. You must. See, that's a definite one. The other one, the men were making excuses, but here, Christ is saying, here is the way you'll enter the kingdom of God and there's no other option. So if the Spirit of God's in us and the Word of God is in us, let us read just a, a little verse. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Peter says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Which liveth and abideth forever. How are we born again? The quickening of the Holy Ghost. The entering in of the word of God. And once the word of God enters in, what happens? The word of God takes root. The word of God grows in you and bears fruit. And when it bears fruit in our lives, it's shown in our lives. And our service, our sacrifice, our devotion is all to Christ. All to Christ. Your life is swallowed up by him. Your will is swallowed up by the will of a greater. And you yield yourself to him because the word of God, Christ is the word manifest in flesh. He's the embodiment of the word of God. And when the word of God is within a man, and when the word of a God is within a woman, that word, what's it doing? It is making, shaping, molding, conforming, and transforming you as a born-again, spirit-filled, blood-washed believer in Christ into his image. An old apostolic man used to go to a prayer meeting with us, and I told you this before. He says, pray. And he say, Lord, he says, stand like this. His two fingers cut off. He says, stand like this. He thought he was shooting a gun. He says, go, Lord. He says, you love your son so much, you want to make millions more of us like him. The example of Christ and his life, the example of Christ and whom he is, the example of him on the earth, the example of all that he has done is the example for you and for me that we would live to be like him. Talk like him and to act like him. To discern like him and to love like him. To serve like him, to yield like him. You know the great kenosis passage that's known in the scriptures, you'll find in Philippians chapter 2, that the Lord Jesus, he's a man, but yet he's God. 
And it says, laying aside, as it were. He was always God, but he lays aside his deity. In other words, in his humanity, he was always deity. But he just showed a man and hung on a cross. You must be born again. Here's a binding clause. Must be born again. Verse 14. Let's run down chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 14, just for time's sake. He gives us an example. He gives Nicodemus an example. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, we'll do, a, we'll do more of a study on something like this, uh, on, on this serpent on a pole some other time. Israel, for their, their backsliding and for their idolatrous worship, they were bitten with snakes and they were dying from the poison. So Moses beseeches the Lord and he says, Lord, what about this serpent's poison? Do you know, brothers and sisters, the serpent, the old devil, that serpent called the devil and Satan has a great poison and he wants to bite everyone. He wants to steal, to kill, and he wants to destroy. He wants to wreck your life. He wants to ruin your marriage. He wants to destroy your family. But you know, Christ stood on his head when he died at Calvary and rose again. And here he gives us an example of what he will do before he even does it. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, what happened was the Lord says, Moses, go and take a, 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 make an image of brass and put it on a pole and lift up. This is where the poison was. This is what poisoned you. Here it is here. Here's the sin. He says, and everyone who looks upon it will be healed. Moses takes a piece of brass, and he puts it on a pole, and they walk through the camp of Israel, and all who are dying of the poison that's within them look upon this piece of brass. In fact, later in the Scriptures, they call it Nehushtan, which simply means a piece of brass. They know it's not an idol. or It's not an idol. It was just something to draw them to, to, to the, the healing power of God. And you know, we're not to look at idols, but we are to look to the Christ of the cross. He who bore our sin for the, the serpent was on the, the, the pole. And the Lord says, as Moses lifted it up, so they're going to lift me up. And all who look at me will be saved. All who look at me, the serpent's poison will, will, will be eradicated from their lives. And I will cleanse them of it. The sin of our lives and the, the very, uh, the, the very uh, nature that we have. Brothers and sisters, whenever we looked at Christ for the first time through the eyes of the Holy Ghost, when we saw him dying for us, he became our sin. He who knew no sin, he became sin for us. He was the greatest sinner because he took our sin, yet he was sinless, yet he was spotless, yet he was undefiled, yet he took our sin and the Father looked at him and poured out his wrath upon him poured out his judgment upon his son, crying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know why he did it? So that you wouldn't stand in that place and in that day that you must be born again. And when you're born again and you stand before the Father, he'll see his son who paid your price, who settled the debt. And there'll be no serpents biting you. No serpent's poison. That's why Jesus said, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He must. If I don't be lifted up like this, Nehushtan, 
piece of brass, this serpent. If I'm not lifted up, they'll all go to a devil's hell. It was a binding clause that Christ would die, for he alone could bear our sin. Don't get me wrong when I said he was the biggest sinner. I mean, he took our sin. He did no sin. One more. And this is for our service and our life. We'll do more next week. There's some musts, you know, as well. We'll look at God willing next week. Some musts in the coming of Christ and our service while he comes, till he comes. But look at this. Stay in John chapter 3. And let your eye run down to verse 30. Listen to what John the Baptist says in seeing Christ with some of his disciples at his side. We all know this. Pointing at Christ and looking at him, he says, He must increase. I must decrease. He, Jesus, must increase. I, John the Baptist, must decrease. He, Jesus, must increase. I, Ken Davidson, must decrease. Let's read that first together, will we? He must increase. I must decrease. Say it again. He must increase. I must decrease. Decrease. Do you know what's wrong, brothers and sisters? And I love you. So I'm not saying this to condemn because I'm as, I'm as guilty as the next man. You know what's wrong? We lose sight of him. And we're so full of ourselves. There's no room for him to get in. So full of the gimme, gimme, gimme's, the me, myself, and the heists. So full of the excuses, I must go see my land. I must go play with the oxen. Oh, I'll twist the word, I must. I'm married, I've got to stay at home. You said it, Lord. See, a binding clause is this. The must needs expressing necessity and certainty is this. John said of Jesus, he must increase. He didn't say, maybe we'll be helpful, boys. I must decrease. Uh, Maybe that's the best thing, boys. Listen, Christ must increase in our life. Christ must increase in our home. Christ must increase in our hearts. Christ must increase in our families. Christ must increase in this assembly. Christ must increase in every ministry. Christ must increase and increase and increase until there's no room left for me. Instead of there's no room left for Christ, have you any room for Jesus? John says he must. It's a binding clause, fellas, he says them. Follow him, not me. Follow Christ, not the pastor. The pastor's a man. Follow Christ. Christ alone. Follow him. I'll tell you, see if we get him into our vision and our view and we follow him alone and throw away our excuses and our sorry state of selfishness as a people, as a 
are individuals, speak of myself too, you know what we'll find? He will increase. The anointing will increase. His presence increases. And everything else fades into oblivion. God bless us word to our hearts this morning. I'm going to do maybe one or two more Sundays. I've loads that it's flying at me and I'm writing it down and doing. This morning I just wrote bullet points and I've about six pages there worth and I've, that's only four bullet points I had this morning. So what we're going to do is we'll look at it again next week in God's will, something different.